Second Peter chapter 1. If you knew that you were going to die soon, what would you tell people? What would you tell your spouse, your children, your, your friends, your workmates, people in the church? What would you tell them if you knew that your death was soon? The Apostle Peter knows his death is soon. And Second Peter is, is kind of like his last will and testament in a, in a way, in some way. Peter's concerned about something, very concerned about something in this book, and he is primarily concerned about the church being attacked by these false teachers. Peter understands the best defense against false teaching is true living. People need to see the real thing. But see, a church filled with growing Christians is not likely to fall prey to apostates who are, who are peddling their false teaching. But Christian living has to be based and grounded on something. And Peter is saying it has to be grounded on God's Word, on the Word of God. False teachers find it easy to seduce people who aren't grounded in God's Word. People who don't know the Bible, it's filled with churches all over the world who don't know the Bible, but they want these experiences with the Lord. I'm not going to get into what that all that looks like. Peter will do that in chapter 2. A lot of people are that way. Don't know their Bibles, so they're tossed about by every wind of doctrine. They love experiences. It's a dangerous thing, really, though, if you think about this dangerous to build on subjective experiences and then at the same time these people ignore objective revelation so they ignore the objective but then they 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 build on what is subjective peter is concerned about that here as he writes in second peter 1 look at verse 12 these are the words of the living god he says Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
We'll be looking at verses 12 through 21 here. I've entitled the message this, Pay Close Attention to God's Word. Pay close attention to God's Word. Peter exhorts us to do such there in verse 19. He says, you'll do well. You will do well to pay attention to this Word. It's, it's like a lamp, he says there. So he's teaching us here about the dependability and the reliability and durability of the Word of God. And he's going to do that by contrasting that to men, to experiences, and even to the world itself. So here's my proposition for you today. What does God want you to do with this beautiful text? Well, God wants you to defend yourself against error. How are you going to do that? By paying attention to His Word. He wants you to pay attention, pay close attention to His Word. Now, now why? <laughs> why would you want to do that? Well, there's, uh, there, there's three reasons or truths we're going to see in today's text about God's Word. Number one, that God's Word lives. God's Word remains. God's Word shines. These are three reasons, three truths that you need to pay attention to His Word because it lives, remains, and shines. So let's look at the first point here. First truth of why we need to pay close attention to God's Word. Well, Peter shows us men die, but the Word lives. Men die. But the word lives. It's interesting, in, in, starting here in verse 12, Peter gives us three motivations behind his ministry as he's writing this letter. Why, why is he so concerned about the church being under attack from false teachers? Well, first of all, you need to understand uh, his, his first motivation was just simply obedience to Christ's command. If you read the Gospels, uh, you would remember Peter knew he had a ministry to fulfill. Peter had denied Christ, but Jesus had told Peter, Hey, Peter, when, when you return again, strengthen your brothers. He said that in Luke 22. So yes, he denied Christ. He failed. Christ says, you got a ministry to fulfill, Peter. Get, on, get up. Get back into the fight. And that's exactly what Peter did. If you look here, Verse 12, Peter may be thinking of Jesus' words when he says, Hey, I intend always to remind you. So Peter did. He strengthened his brothers. His second motivation here is just simply this reminder was the right thing to do. Notice verse 13, he says, I, I think it is right. I think it's right. Yeah, it's always right, Peter, to stir up the saints. It's the right thing to do to remind them of the Word of God. By the way, I hope that's a motivation for you. You're supposed to be a stirrer in a good way. <laughs> Sometimes we use that word in a bad way. You can stir people in the wrong way. But uh, Peter's exhorting, hey, this, this is his motivation. Be a stirrer in a good way. Point people to the Scriptures. But his third motivation is wrapped up here in verse 15 in that one word, effort. Effort. The, the word effort means to hasten to do something, to be zealous in doing it. Peter knew that he's going to die soon. So what did he want to do? He wants to take care of some spiritual responsibilities before it was too late. 
Now, what was it that Peter wanted to accomplish? And the answer is found in three words. They're all kind of similar here. He mentions the word remind, reminder, and recall. You'll see those in verses uh, 12 to 15. Remind, reminder, and recall. So that's what Peter wants to accomplish here. He wants to impress on his readers' minds with the Word of God something that they would never forget. He knows he's not going to be around forever. So he wants to remind them, call them to remember, call them to recall God's truth. Verse, again, it's interesting, verse 13, he uses that word stir. That verb stir means to awaken, to arouse. You ever tried to awaken someone who's in a deep sleep? That could be a lot of fun. It could be a scary thing, too. <laughs> I remember uh, a family member of mine being awakened after uh, having jet lag and traveling overseas, and uh, another family member trying to wake her up in this deep sleep, and it was a scary thing. It's probably scary for both people, in fact. Peter knew that our minds can get accustomed to truth. That's sadly our depraved, fallen human nature. And sometimes we can just take things for granted. We often forget what we should remember, don't we? Uh, that's the way my mind is. But Peter knew that he was going to die here. He mentions that. So he wants to leave behind something that's never going to die. If you're in his shoes and his sandals, what are you going to do? The only thing that is, besides God, that is mentioned here, because God's eternal, is, is the Scriptures. The written Word of God would stay behind for these people. Of course, we know Peter wrote two epistles, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Uh, it, it appears the Gospel according to Mark is basically uh, Peter's account of Jesus' life and ministry. And so, we've got the inspired Scriptures he's leaving behind. And they've been ministering to the saints for centuries, some almost 2,000 years now. So we see Peter died, men died, we all die. Wages of sin is death, it says, but something lives on, the Word of God. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the church is only one generation away from extinction. Just one generation. If there were no dependable written revelation, if, if that didn't exist, then what would you have to depend on? It would be like a lot of civilizations before us, right? It's just spoken words, the word-of-mouth traditions. And if you've ever played that game, it has different names. Uh, sometimes it gets called gossip or Chinese whispers. You know the game I'm talking about? If you've ever played that game, you, you, you know just how dangerous it would be if we had to rely on word-of-mouth tradition being passed down from generation to generation. So you, if you're not familiar with that game with Chinese whispers, you start at one end of the room uh, with a sentence, and then each person whispers that sentence into the next person's ear, and then the last person says what was supposed to be said at the beginning. Of course, it never matches if you have enough people to do that. In fact, they can be totally different by the time you're done, right? It's like, how did that happen? Word of mouth is not a reliable way to pass down tradition. 
And so we, we, we don't depend on the traditions of dead men. We depend on the truth of the living word that has been accurately passed down. And so men die, but the word lives forever. And so fortunately, we can depend on this written word. It is written. It stands written forever. It's not going to change. We can be saved through this living word. We can be nurtured and sanctified by this word. We can be guided and protected by this word. So, what have we seen here so far? We see men die, but the word lives on. Peter wants to teach us another truth here. He talks about his experiences, but experiences fade, but the word remains. That's point number two. Experiences fade, but the word remains. That's verses 16 to 18. Please notice in the text how the paragraph begins. My Bible, it starts with the word for. For is, it's a linking word, okay? <laughs> I'm trying not to get too technical. But it's a causal term. It's linking the previous paragraph or passage uh, to and, and explaining why Peter's reminding his hearers of the truth. He wants to remind his hearers of the truth, and now he's explaining why he's doing this. He's absolutely convinced of the truth. He's, he's taught and he's written about. Why? Because he says he's personally experienced it. He's personally experienced it. He also spoke for the other apostles. It's interesting when he uses the word we, that's plural. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So he's not just speaking for himself. He's talking about the other apostles here, especially the ones who were at the Mount of Transfiguration. So all the apostles received supernatural revelation. What is it doing? Confirming that what they were preaching was the truth. So in verse 16, that's interesting. What's Peter doing in verse 16 when he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Well, he's answering this accusation that's probably coming from his critics. There, there is this thing circulating off and around the apostles that they would teach lies just to attract followers and make money. Peter wasn't the only one to experience that. And so it's no surprise since false teachers sought power. They sought popularity. They, they wanted to, to, to bring themselves money and pleasure in the process, just like false teachers today do. However, what Peter does here, though, is he's refuting his accusers by saying, hey, I didn't follow their, their deceptive approach of the, the false teachers. I didn't follow that. He says, he says we, we made known to you, there in verse 16, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He was an eyewitness, a reliable source. So the focus here in this particular section is on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. You can read about that in, in uh, three of the Gospels, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's interesting, if, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, not, none of those writers were actually participating in the transfiguration. Peter, though, was there. And we can read uh, we can read about that in Matthew 17. Look, turn over to Matthew 17. Keep your finger here, but 
you're not going to really understand what Peter's writing about till you understand what was already experienced. So Matthew 17 talks about the transfiguration. Notice Peter's mentioned here in verse 1. Matthew 17, verse 1 says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. That ends the section of Matthew 17 on the transfiguration. But take note that Matthew was not there. But it does mention Peter. So you've got uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mentioning the account. But Peter's the only one actually participating in it. So you say, well, okay, that's interesting. So what's uh, the significance of the transfiguration? Why is it mentioned? Well, for one thing, it confirmed Peter's testimony in the previous chapter of Matthew. Remember what Peter said in Matthew 16? He makes his bold confession of Christ. He says, you know, Jesus asked Peter, well, well, who do you say that I am? Don't, don't tell me what other people are saying. Who do you say that I am, Peter? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ooh, good answer, Peter. <laughs> that was a good answer. Great answer. Bold confession. Well, we come into chapter 17 here, of Matthew, that is. And this is significant. It's confirming Peter's testimony of Jesus Christ. How did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? How did he know that? Peter saw Jesus in his glory. This veil that was over Jesus was removed for this moment in time. And we also hear God the Father speaking from heaven. And Peter mentions that here in chapter 1 when he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 17 says so. So the transfiguration confirms Peter's testimony, but it also has a special significance to Jesus. 
Because remember, Jesus is coming near to Calvary. He's coming near to his time of sacrifice on the cross. And so this was the father's way of strengthening his son for the terrible ordeal that was about to happen. Also pointing to Jesus, confirming who Jesus is. But there's a third message we need to take note of here, and it it all has to do with the promised kingdom. It's interesting, in all three Gospels where the account of the transfiguration is recorded, there's an introduction statement. You go back, I'd recommend you do this sometime later, go back and you'll find in the previous text statements about the kingdom of God. Matthew 16 mentions it, Mark 9, Luke 9, all mentioned the statement about the kingdom of God that was to come. So Jesus promised here before they died that some of the disciples would see that kingdom of God and they would see it in power. But was Jesus wrong? Some might say that he, he was or he was mistaken. They didn't get this, this kingdom never seemed to come. Well, it took place here on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus reveals his glory. It was a word of assurance to the disciples who they didn't really understand all of Jesus' teaching. Well, at least not until after the resurrection anyway. But Peter wrote a summary of what he saw and he heard here on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus robed in his majestic glory. He witnessed a, a demonstration of the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure it encouraged Peter in the days to come. But Peter not only saw Christ's glory, as we said in verse 17, he heard the Father's voice. God the Father speaks from heaven. It mentions talking about the majestic glory. That's a kind of a veiled reference to God in heaven here. And you need to understand, witnesses are people who tell accurately what they've seen and heard. And praise God, we have a faithful witness, an accurate witness to what was seen and heard. So if you want to know the answer to the question, is Jesus of Nazareth the Son of God? We have a faithful witness who says, yes, he is. He is the Son of God. How do we know? Peter says, God the Father said he so. God the Father said, Jesus is the Son of God. That's how we know. You and I were not eyewitnesses, obviously, of the transfiguration. But Peter was there, and he records faithfully for us his experience in this letter that he wrote. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, what do we learn? Well, experiences fade. Peter had an amazing experience. probably trumps anything that uh, you and I have experienced here. But Peter says, there's something that remains, and it's the Word of God. Experiences are subjective. They're subjective. But the Word of God is objective. Experiences may be interpreted in different ways. But God's Word has one clear message. So what we remember about our experiences, of course, can be distorted. Uh, even what we eat, drugs or whatever, can uh, change our view on things. But God's Word remains the same, and it abides forever. That's what Peter wants you to remember. So when you study 
2 Peter, and when we get into the second chapter, we're going to discover that these apostate teachers are going to try to turn people away from the Word of God. Now, why would they do that? You know, they're going to tell people, hey, you need to get into your a deeper experience with the Lord. Ignore the Word of God. Get into this experience. And often those experiences are contrary to the Word of God. Well, then what do you do if they don't match up? God's Word doesn't match up with your experience. Sadly, too many people go with their experience. And so these false teachers use, in chapter 2, they're going to... Peter's going to talk about the false words they use instead of the inspired scriptures. In other words, this is really a matter of life and death. That's why Peter's concerned about this. See, your eternal destiny lies here. If a person believes the truth, he lives. If a person believes lies, he dies. It's the difference between their salvation and condemnation. So by reminding his readers here of the transfiguration, Peter affirmed several important doctrines of the Christian faith. So let me remind you what he's talking about here. So he affirms, number one, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And that's important because the test of any religion is what does that religion, what does that person say about the identity of Jesus Christ? You want to know what someone believes? That ought to be one of your first questions to ask them. First John mentions it several times. Hey, get, get to the root here. What do you say about Jesus? And so if a religious teacher denies the deity of Christ, well, he's a false teacher. First John says if they deny the humanity of Christ, they're a false teacher. They must be both. He is the God-man, Two. Two, he's God and man in one person forever. But there's another test. What, what is the work of Jesus Christ? So not just his identity, but what, what, what has he done? What is he continuing to do? Why did he come? What did he do when he was here? Important questions to be asking. So Peter's affirming these, these, uh, these doctrines, and one of those is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he said he was. Another one that's important for us to, to think about here is Peter's also affirming the truth of Scripture. Notice he, he points to uh, these different people who are at Jesus' side there in the mount. He mentions Moses and Elijah. That's not just random people that Jesus decided to have with him. Moses was one of the, the, the greatest of all of the Israelites. He, he's the one who writes the first five books in your Bible, what we often call the law or the Pentateuch. And so Moses represents the law. Then you have this Elijah guy who, who's often mentioned in Scripture, and he represents the prophets. So you got the law represented, and you got the prophets represented right next to Jesus. Why are they there? Well, Peter kind of misses the point. <laughs> They're there to point to Jesus. They're both pointing to Jesus. Luke says so in in Luke chapter 24 when he says the whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. He's the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. So we believe the Bible because, well, number one, Jesus believed the Bible and Jesus said it was the word of God. And so those who question the truth and the authority of the scriptures 
they're not really arguing with Moses and Elijah. They're not really arguing with the apostles like Peter. They're arguing with Jesus. Peter could not share his experiences with us, but at least he could share the record of what he had witnessed, the record of his experiences. So at least we have a a permanent record here in the Word of God. It's not necessary for us to try to duplicate these experiences. So it'd be unwise for you to go and pray for this, to try to try to experience the same thing Peter did. In fact, it'd probably be dangerous for you to try to do that because uh, the devil uh, is quite happy to give counterfeit experiences to, to people to try to lead them astray, and he, and he, and he does that sometimes. I wouldn't recommend you try to duplicate Peter's experience. So what have we learned so far? Two important truths showing you why you need to pay close attention to the Word of God. Well, number one, men die, but the Word lives. Second, he says that experiences, they're awesome, but they fade, but the Word remains. And Peter gives us a third truth. should be exhorting us to pay close attention to the Word of God. And we see here the world darkens, but the Word shines. Word, the world darkens, but the word shines. Now, in some respects, the world is getting better, okay? I'm not going to say in, in all respects it's, it's, it's worse, but it's interesting here. Look what Peter says. He talks about this uh, in verse 19 when he says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place. So, you could think of all kinds of examples of how the world is getting better, in your opinion. But there is something that doesn't change. The human heart is still wicked. The human heart is still wicked. Even though medical science can uh, supposedly enable people to live longer, are they really living better lives? Not necessarily. Apostles, by the way, didn't expect the world to get better and better, either morally or spiritually. In fact, uh, I think all the apostles warned the church that false teachers would invade the local churches. They would introduce their false doctrines and lead many people astray. They're all concerned about that. The world would get darker and darker, but as it did, you know this, you've experienced it. What happens to a light in the dark? The darker the room gets, the brighter the, the light is. Turn the lights on, it, you can, you can, it's like you almost snuff out the candle. So what does God want from us? What does he want us to do? Look at verse 19 again. He says, pay attention to my word. Pay attention to God's word. Well, what does that mean to pay attention? The idea is this. It, it means to apply oneself to. To attach oneself to, to hold on to, to, to cleave, cleave onto something. In this case, it's a thing. Uh, one definition even said to be addicted to. Think about someone who is addicted to something. Think of their characteristics. They have one passion, someone who's totally addicted to something. That passion is to that thing, and they'll do anything to keep it, to have it. They don't want to lose it. 
So I ask, are you addicted to your Bible? Are you addicted to your Bible? That's the basic idea of what Peter is exhorting us to do here. Be addicted to your Bible. Pay close attention to it. Now you say, well, why would I want to do that? That's hard work. <laughs> it is. Not easy, is it, at times? Peter gives you three reasons to be addicted to Scripture. Number one, he says it's the sure word. You should be addicted to Scripture because it's the sure word. That's what he says in verse 19. You have this prophetic word that is more fully confirmed, which you'll do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, Peter wasn't suggesting that here that the Bible is more certain than the experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, the, the word is not more sure than Jesus himself, of course. So his experience was something that was real. It was true. He wasn't making it up. So the record in your Bible is sure. It's dependable. And as we've seen, the transfigure was the transfiguration, that is, was a demonstration of the promise given in the prophetic word. And this promise, by the way, has added certainty because of Peter's experience. And so the apostates, they'll, they'll attempt to discredit things. In fact, Peter talks about one of the things they try to discredit in chapter 3 is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, they, you know, they make jokes and scoff about the coming of the Lord. But the scriptures are sure. For after all, the promise of the kingdom was reaffirmed by Moses, Elijah, and the Son of God, and God the Father, and the Holy Spirit writes about it here for the church records. So it's a sure word. A second reason to be addicted to Scripture is it's a shining word. It is the shining word. It talks about this dark place, this world we live in, a dark place there in verse 19. But notice there's some good news. Pay attention to His word because it's like a lamp shining in this dark place. But the light of the world is coming. He's this day star, this morning star. Hold on to Him. Look forward to Him. He's coming. So Peter called the world a dark place. The word he used there means it's murky. I don't know if you've ever gone swimming in murky water, like it you know, really murky water where you can't hardly see, you know, your hand in front of your face kind of stuff. That's the picture here. It's a picture of a, a damp cellar, a gloomy swamp. That's how that word is, is often used. And human history, as you know, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, started in a beautiful paradise, the Garden of Eden. But that garden quickly became a murky swamp. But you know what? You and I still see beauty in this world, don't we? Because, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. This firmament, this earth, shows His handiwork. It is fallen. It is cursed, yes. But we still see beauty in God's creation. And we, we, we see no beauty in what mankind is doing to God's creation. That's the difference. Satan, mankind can't create anything. They just take what God's created and they corrupt it. That's why it's described as dark. But we know that God is light. His word is light, like a lamp as it's described here. Psalm 119 says, Your word 
is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So as believers, we must heed this word. We must govern our lives according to this word. Peter describes Jesus as like a a, a day star. Before the the day dawns, have you ever been out as the sun is is just starting to come up and you'll see a few stars off on the horizon? That morning star here is described like Jesus. Shining brightly, heralding the dawn. Dark place? Well, guess what? The sun's going to come up. It's not going to stay dark. So to the church, Jesus Christ is the bright and morning star. The promise of His coming shines brightly no matter how dark our day may be. So my friends, think of Jesus as kind of like the dawn. It can be discouraging to be awake at night, can't it? You don't feel well, there's not much to look at because it's dark, but when dawn comes, it's encouraging, isn't it? And that's the idea here, because one day, Jesus is going to come. He's going to remove the dark. All the curse will be removed as well. All sin will be removed. The light of the world is coming. Look for him. The third reason Peter gives here is this word is spirit-given. It is the spirit-given word. It does, the source is not from humans, in other words. And so Peter affirms that the Scriptures were not written by just men. Yes, God used these men, he says. He used their ideas and their personalities and, and their words. You can see that coming up. But notice the text says, notice what it says, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting word. When it says they were carried by the Holy Spirit, the idea is like a sailboat. This very Greek word is used of sailboats, being carried along by the wind. A sailboat does nothing. It goes nowhere when there is no wind. It just sits there in the water, going nowhere. But something is carried along by the wind. The wind carries that boat and moves it along. It's the idea here of these men of God. Scriptures are God-breathed. They're not the inventions of men. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. And since the Spirit gave the Word, then only the Spirit then can teach the Word. He's the one who interprets the Word accurately. Of course, every false teacher claims he is led by the Spirit. Right? But his handling of the Word of God soon exposes him for what he is. Since the Bible did not come, as it says, by the will of man, then where did it come from? It can't be understood by the will of man. It's interesting in your text there, that word own. You see that word own? Where is it? Oh, the end of verse 20. The end of verse 20 talks about one's own interpretation. That means one's own. It's own. The suggestion here is, since all Scripture is inspired by the Spirit, then, then it all hangs together because it has one author. No one Scripture should be divorced from the others. Right? One of the major rules of Bible interpretation is 
You interpret Scripture in context. Look at it in its context. That's what you do with everything else you read. Why do people do it with Scripture? They rip it out of context. Dangerous. It all hangs together. There's one author. It's one big book. No Scripture needs to be divorced, should be divorced from the others. And so you can use the Bible to prove almost anything if you're isolating verses from the proper context. And that's, that's the approach a lot of false teachers use. And so the only way that false teachers then can so-called prove their heresies, their false teachings, is by misusing the Word of God. Isolate a text apart from the context, and you get a pretext. It's kind of like, uh, I'll give you a funny example. I still remember this from my hermeneutics class way, way, way back in university when I was being taught how to interpret the Bible. It's kind of like uh, somebody coming to the Bible and just randomly, you, you want to do a funny exercise? Do what some people do. They just take the Bible and just randomly open it and close your eyes and point to a verse and see what you get. And just do that to five verses and then live by that for the week. Whoa, that could be dangerous, right? Somebody hypothetically did this, and here's what they got. I still remember this from hermeneutics class. Somebody, somebody closes their eyes, randomly opens the Bible, points the verse, and it says, Judas went and hung himself. Okay? All right, let's try this again. That's interesting. Close eyes, open page, point. Whatever you do, do with all your might. Okay. Close eyes, openly, randomly open the Bible and point. Whatever you do, do quickly. Okay, so the Bible just taught me to commit suicide quickly. Right? Right? I mean, that's a humorous example of, of how you can end up with something that's very dangerous and absurd. That's what false teachers often do. You can just randomly pick stuff wherever you want and get the Bible to say what you want. But Peter's saying, don't do that. Interpret in context. Spirit-given word, one author, it's united. It's not going to contradict itself. There might be apparent contradictions, but it's all united. So, beware. Isolated texts depart from the context, become pretext. So men die, the word lives. Experiences fade, but the word remains. The world's growing darker, but the word shines even brighter in the dark. So the believer who is building his life on the Word of God, who is looking for the coming of a Savior, of the second coming of the Savior. You're not likely to be led astray by false teachers if you're hanging on to that. If you're taught by the Spirit and you're grounded in the sure Word of God, the apostates will not lead you astray. They won't be able to do that. And that's Peter's message as he prepares for his death for his, his home going, Peter's saying, hey, hey, readers, listeners, wake up. I want you to remember something. Recall what the Word of God says. Pay attention. Pay close attention. Why? Why would I want to pay close attention to that, Peter? <laughs> because a sleeping church is the devil's playground. A sleeping church is the devil's playground. He'll sneak in and 
And he could take you out when you're asleep. So let me ask you, my friends, will you resolve to pay close attention to God's word so that you can defend yourself against error? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sure word that shines in the dark. Thank you for pointing the way for us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being the light of the world. Thank you for making us mirrors who can reflect the light. We're thankful for this light that is a light to our path. We don't have to stumble and fall in the dark. But may we do as Peter says here, to remember, remind ourselves, to recall these, these precious words and truths so that we would not fall prey to the apostates and their false teaching. May we be uh, ever watchful, be awake. When they, when they do come and they try to attack, that we're, we're ready to defend ourselves. So may we live right, that we would also be right, that we would persevere all the way to the end as, as we see Peter doing here. Do you enable us to do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.